1 Corinthians chapter 5. Follow along in your Bible. Before we do that, I want to ask you a question, and I don't expect an answer tonight, but I really want you to ponder this, because it's something that, quite frankly, it, it bothers me. And that is the question that after you read and study this chapter tonight, is what Paul is laying down here as the responsibility of believers in a local church based upon the kind of Christian culture that has been created in the last, say, even 25 to 50 years in America, is it even possible for a local church to be able to follow this command? Think about that. Have we, as the church, have we gotten so far off from what God intended the church to be, that there are passages of Scripture that God teaches the local church, this is how you all are supposed to be and interrelate with each other, and yet we've created a culture that really makes it almost impossible to carry that out. And the reason I want you to think about that is because I'd like, after tonight, I'd like some of you to share with me on Sunday, Give it a couple days. And maybe next Tuesday, what you think about the answer to that question. And again, it all is forming here around the principle that Paul has basically given to the Corinthians in the first four chapters. And that is, guys, it's a great privilege to be part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be part of his body. But it's also a great responsibility. As I said earlier, even in my prayer, we live in a society today that they want the privileges of the things, but they don't like a lot of the responsibilities that come with certain things. And that sort of has even crept into the church where being part of a local church or being part of the church, we like the perks, we like the privileges. But what about the responsibility? And have we even really thought about Responsibility for being part of a church? What's that about? I think we're going to see tonight what's that about from God's perspective. I'm just going to read the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Follow along in your Bible. Paul says, It is actually reported that sexual immorality exists among you. The kind of immorality that is not even permitted among the Gentiles. So that someone is cohabitating with his father's wife. And you're proud. Shouldn't you have been deeply sorrowful instead and removed the one who did this from among you? For even though I am absent physically, I am present in spirit. And I have already judged the one who did this, just as though I were present. When you gather together in the name of our Lord Jesus, I am with you in spirit along with the power of our Lord Jesus. Turn this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Obviously, the situation had come to Paul's attention. By the word actually in the first verse, it literally means holy. In other words, this wasn't just something that one or two people knew or were talking about. This was public knowledge in the church. It was public knowledge in Corinth. It wasn't like, you know, just a few people knew about this. It was common knowledge. 
And what was common knowledge is that there was this, in a sense, just blatant sin by a member at the church at Corinth, and the church wasn't dealing with it at all. They were just letting it go. They weren't confronting the individual about it. In fact, he says, you're actually proud. Very interestingly, the word in the Greek means to make natural. In other words, the implication is that like even today, it's almost like the Corinthians were saying, well, you know, sexual sin is so rampant in our society today. It's going to be in the church. And what are you going to do? Start, start talking to everybody about being pure and stuff? That just isn't going to happen. So let's just not deal with it at all. And Paul says, no. And he's going to show us here that there are many reasons why the church needs to deal with sin. And what's that even mean? First of all, a couple things here that are important to note. This is not just someone in the church just making a mistake and, and sinning and, and, and doing something and then you know feeling awful about it and repenting about it. The language that Paul is using here is this, this man had continually been doing this for a long time and had no intention of quitting his sin. He, he, it wasn't like this was just a mistake and, you know, this was a long-term, I've committed myself to this sinful relationship. And so we have to keep that in mind too. Paul is obviously, as we know from other passages, not teaching us that in the church we're to get groups of like spiritual policemen and go out to people, you know, and check up on them and see how they're living and all of that. No, no, no. I mean, get, get the spirit of what Paul's saying. But Paul's saying that this was so blatant. Everybody in the church knew about it. Everybody in the city knew about it. It was just an in-your-face, this is what I'm going to do. I don't care what God says about it. And Paul even points out, guys, don't you realize, this is a sin that even people who aren't in the church... People who don't even have a relationship with God, they even have a better morality than that. What kind of example are you, the church, being to those outside the church? In fact, what Paul is basically saying is what we see a lot today, that there's as much sin in the church as there is outside. It's almost like there's no distinction between the spiritual temperature inside the church and the spiritual temperature outside the church. And Paul said, that should never be. How else can the church truly be a light and say, hey, we've got a better way. We've got the light. We've got the truth. We're free. Christ has set us free. How can we say that with any moral authority, any legitimacy, if the spiritual temperature inside churches is no different than the spiritual temperature outside the church? I think what we're going to see here tonight then is also implied. We'll get to this in a little bit, but doesn't this also then point out very clearly that the church should predominantly be made up of believers? The more unbelievers that you have in the church, the spiritual temperature goes down. And the fact that the church should be a place that is challenging all of us, including the pastor, to live to a very high standard because we are responsible because people are watching how we live. And Paul is saying this sin and this man should have been confronted rather than you guys taking a very passive approach 
to the situation in Corinth. In fact, notice he says in verse 2, shouldn't you have even been deeply sorrowful, mournful, grieving over it? Shouldn't it have bothered you? A couple questions came to mind as I was reading and studying this passage in the last couple of months and weeks. Whatever happened to sin? (laughs) What even ever happened to sin? We don't use that word a lot in our Christian churches and culture because it might offend somebody. And in our culture today, we don't even call sin, sin. We call it disease. We call it addiction. We call it every other thing but sin. And whatever happened to shame for our sin? Because of the way man has developed, if you will, or evolved down through history, we've even gotten to a place in our day and age where People who do wrong actually flaunt it. They're not ashamed of it. They're proud of it. And they can be because our society basically, it's not the church that's creating character anymore for the most part. We're looking to Hollywood to create our character or government to create our character or someplace in the world to create character. And then we look around our society and we see a total lack of integrity and character at every level of society. And we see people who are being put up on television and made celebrities. And they're made celebrities because they're basically sinful. And they make millions of dollars off of being sinful. And they're actually proud of it. Well, that's nothing new, obviously. Paul says, yeah, you, you guys didn't react to that too well. And it even reminds me as an individual Christian that I'm going to sin, obviously. We're all going to sin. But how do we respond to that? Does it bother us? Or do we just sort of excuse it and say things like, well, that's just the way I am, or that's just the way God made me? See, to me... When I sin against God, a holy God that we've sung about tonight, there should be sorrow there. Think about it when David finally allowed the magnitude of what he did to hit him. He was sorrowful for it. He wept. He mourned. He grieved. He realized how he had hurt God. He said, against you, God, and against you only have I sinned. We don't see a lot of that today in our churches and in our Christian culture. We don't see a lot of Christians bothered and mourning over their sin. And then Paul says, shouldn't you have removed the one who did this from among you? For even though he says, I'm absent, I'm I'm going to judge. And again, got to lay this message alongside the one from Sunday to get the balance. There are certain things that the Bible that God says we have no business judging. And as I said Sunday, the best indoor sport of Christians is to try to change each other and, and judge each other. And that's not what we're to be about. But when it comes to clear right and wrong, 
what the Bible clearly says is black and white, right and wrong, I don't care. It is absolutely our responsibility to judge what's right and wrong. In fact, even from a non-spiritual level, our government even has the whole, you know, jury system. And we sit as peers in judgment of our peers in society when they break the law. Because we have, even as a society, laid down laws that say this is clearly right behavior and this is clearly wrong behavior. And the only way we're going to be able to put some kind of corral around people doing wrong is to give them some kind of consequences for it. If if they don't suffer any consequences, then what's going to prohibit them from continuing to destroy our society? And Paul said that is also the responsibility of the church because if we as a church don't confront this kind of sin, it's going to destroy the church. It will destroy the testimony of the church. It will destroy the fellowship of the church. If sin of this magnitude, this public, is not dealt with. So he says, when you gather together, In the name of our Lord Jesus. And that's an important principle because he's saying when the church gathers together, we're gathering together in the name or supposed to be in the name of our Lord Jesus. And what that means is that we are to embody all that he is and all that Jesus stands for. That's what the church is supposed to do. We're supposed to, when we come together, we're supposed to do and be and, and conduct ourselves Consistent with who Jesus is. That's our responsibility. And so he says, I'm already with you in spirit along with the power of our Lord Jesus. The strength, the influence of our Lord Jesus. In other words, he's saying, guess what guys? Jesus is going to be there in Corinth when you do what God is asking you to do. And he will be there to help you do it. The right thing isn't always the easy thing. Sometimes in life, doing the right thing is is hard, but it's very necessary. There's a verse that we pull out of its context many times. I want to remind all of us tonight where this verse in its context is found. Jesus says, where two or three of you are gathered together, I will be there. But the context of that verse, many times people don't realize, is when Jesus is talking to his followers about dealing with sin in the church. He says, when you need to remove somebody, if two or three of you are agreeing about it, I will be there. That's the context of that verse. Now, obviously, we can apply that verse in other situations, but in Matthew 18, that's the context of that verse. And I think that's part of what Paul's saying. And he says, turn this man, literally the word turn means to be taught or molded. Turn this man over to Satan for the destruction, the external consequences of the flesh. In other words, physical consequences so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, literally healed or cured in spirit. What's Paul teaching here? What's God saying? God is saying, first of all, that there needs to be consequences to sin or else it won't really 
push people to do what's right. And that's true in the church as well. And what he's saying is, if you remove this person from your fellowship, that there's a sort of a protection that God gives to people who gather in his name as part of a local church. When the church removes somebody because of their unrepentant sin and says, you are no longer welcome here and places you outside of the church, we're placing them outside in a sense of the protection that comes from being part of the church and they will begin to suffer, in a sense, physical consequences for their actions. Now notice, though, something really cool. This process is never meant to be punitive, a punishment, as many people think. And they get such a warped view of this. It is meant to be restorative. That by doing this, we're actually caring enough about the person that we're hoping that when they begin to suffer painful consequences for their choice, that they will see the error of their way, they will repent, they will turn back to God and be received back into fellowship with God and with the church. It's always to restore. It's never to punish someone. It's no different than a parent has to at times correct their child for their own good. Same thing here. Same thing here. One of the people that I admire in the Bible is the father of the prodigal son. Because the prodigal son basically made a bunch of bad choices, said, Dad, I want my inheritance. And he went out and just frivolously just, you know, partied and wasted it all and got to the place where the Bible says he had nothing. He was living in squalor. And he looks up and goes, what have I done? And the reason I admire the father is that As a parent, you and I as parents could very easily have enabled that son to continue actually on in sin by by trying to ease the consequences, by trying to, to, to make it not be so bad, even though they made a bunch of bad choices in life. And yet the father knew that by allowing his son to hit rock bottom, It was going to get that son to a point where finally he might start listening to God and come back to God. And that was always the number one goal. Not to ease the pain of the consequences of the choice, but actually realizing that in the painful consequences, that was the only way his son was going to repent and turn around. And so he left him alone and let him hit rock bottom. And basically, Paul is saying that that's what the church needs to do. Again, because we love that person enough to not let them continue to go down that path and continue to destroy their life and destroy other people's lives. See, in other words, what Paul is saying is the church needs to be the church for one reason is because we would love that person enough to confront them about what they're doing. See, some people would say, oh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to judge and, and I, I love people enough. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, do that. And that's where I say, I, I even wonder, have we created such a culture in our modern day church that this, this couldn't even be carried out today for a couple reasons. One, most Christians would never confront another Christian about stuff because they feel like, who am I? Okay. 
Two, as I said Sunday, we've created this culture where if somebody doesn't like what that church does, they'll just go down the block to another church. And so a lot of times this is totally going to lose its punch because if if someone in a local church is confronted about something, they'll go, fine, I'm leaving this church. I'm going to go somewhere else. You guys, you know. Part of what made this powerful back then was there was only one church in Corinth. So th- this guy couldn't lose the fellowship of his fellow Christians and go down the block to another church. He either had to accept what, work through it somehow, see? Where today, you know, it doesn't work that way any longer. People aren't willing to be, uh, to, people aren't willing to be admonished by other people. You know, their first response is, who are you to tell me how to live? Even when it's something that's clearly right and wrong. Trust me, I know. As a pastor for 27 years, and I'm not talking about me actually even going, I'm talking about people who've come to me for counseling or whatever and said, Hey, here's what I'm doing. What do you think? And when I show them in the Bible where it's clearly wrong, they just leave my office and tell me how stupid I am and they find another counselor, another pastor somewhere who's going to tell them what they want to hear. Because we live in a society that wants validated and wants affirmed. And so if they don't like what this pastor said or this counselor said, all they continue to do is hop around to find somebody that they can find who finally agrees with them and says, yeah, you're okay. Oh, good. I'm finally glad I found somebody who thought I was okay. So, like I said, I just, I really wonder. But I I want us to really understand that the reason why God said this is our responsibility is because we should care enough about our brothers and sisters in Christ and our walk with God that we have that kind of relationship with each other. It's strong enough where people can say the hard thing to us that needs to be said. We can say the hard thing that needs to be said. And we won't walk away from each other, but we'll hang in there with each other. That's the kind of fellowship we're trying to create at the Oasis because I think it's biblical. That we have such a strong bond with each other that we're going to hang in there with each other. And sometimes in any healthy friendship, that means... I'm going to have to listen to you tell me some things that I need to hear but don't want to hear. And sometimes you're going to have to hear me say some things that you don't want to hear but you need to hear. And that we don't get upset and just walk away from each other. Then in verse 6, the next reason why we need to do this is because If we don't deal with it, it's like a cancer. It will spread throughout the church. And then you even think about, as I looked around and saw all the teens here tonight and and the young people and the children, if we as adults in the church don't deal with it, what kind of example are we saying and setting to young people to say this kind of behavior is okay and there's no consequences for it? Notice what Paul says. You're boasting is not good. Literally, the word boasting means proud confidence. In other words, the Corinthians were like, even though this guy's in our fellowship and he's blatantly sinning and he's, you know, he's living with his stepmother and they're having sex all the time outside of marriage and all of that, and everybody in the church knows it, it's not going to affect anybody else in the church. That's just between him and his stepmother. And Paul said, you don't understand the way sin works, do you? 
He says, don't you know that a little yeast affects the whole batch of dough? The word affects means to mix, infect, corrupt. He says, don't you realize that's the way sin is in the church, even in our lives? That you allow a little bit in, and eventually it spreads to where, again, the spiritual the temperature of the church goes down and down and down, and there's not that fire anymore for God because people in the church are living no less distinctively for God than people outside the church. People who don't know God. That's why he says in verse 7, clean out the old yeast. Literally, it means thoroughly clean. It also means to prune. Those of you that do gardening will know what that means. The old yeast means deteriorating or causing infection so that you may be a new batch of dough. I love the word new. It means youthful. It means alive. It means energetic. In other words, great spiritual principle here. Sin in our life will rob us of spiritual energy. But when we are striving to live a righteous, holy life before God, we will have spiritual power and energy and life. There's two primary reasons why Christians lack energy for God. One, their schedule and, and their life is... Too much. They're trying to do too much and therefore they're weighed and burdened down. And Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I never ask you to do all that. And so one reason we don't have enough energy for God is because we're too involved in other things. But there's a second reason, and that is we've got to then think, how about this sin in my life? Because if there's one thing biblically that will rob us of energy for God, it's ongoing sin. And that's why Jesus said, I didn't just come to bring you into a relationship with me. I came to help you overcome sin because it will be a drag on your spiritual life all the time. You are, in fact, Paul said, without yeast, meaning you have been set free by God not to infect others. For Christ is our Passover lamb. Why is he introducing the Passover at this point? Because they knew, even as Gentiles, about the Feast of Israel. Sad today that as Gentiles, we don't know enough about Old Testament and Old Testament history as we should. But then they knew that what came after the Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the whole reason why God wanted his people to celebrate Passover, remember in the book of Exodus, and how they were to celebrate it, was not just because of the blood and the death angel passing over. Remember he said to them, and when you eat Passover, do it with your shoes on and get ready to leave this place. Because it was a picture of the fact that the Passover lamb and the blood that was shed by that lamb was not only spilled for them so that they could be set free from Egypt, but so that they could be on their way to journey to the promised land where God had this wonderful new life for them. 
And so it's this picture of when when we accept the Passover lamb, we're also to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread and, and allow Christ to overcome the sin in our life because it's it's going to help us to move towards, in a sense, our own promised land that God has for us. That life that God wants us to experience. And we can't do that as long as we're holding on to sin. We've got to lay sin aside and begin to live for Christ. So that's why he says... So then let us celebrate the festival, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, not with the old yeast, the yeast of vice and evil, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. So the first reason why we need to, as a church, step up and be responsible and build the kind of church that we need to is, first of all, because we should care enough about the spiritual life of each other that we're willing to do what the Bible tells us to do. Second... We need to be the church that God calls us to be because if we don't deal with sin in the church, it will spread. It will sap us of our spiritual energy as a church. Some great examples of this, one I want to just remind us all of, is in the Old Testament, the book of Joshua, when they were getting ready to go into the promised land and they suffered tremendous defeat. And remember, it was because there was sin in the camp. Achan and his family had stolen some of the loot. And even though... A lot of people didn't know about it. God knew about it. And and the reason why Israel as a nation could not win their battles is because they had to first deal with sin from within before they could move on and conquer their enemies and move forward. And so he says that's why the church needs to deal with sin this way. Because if we don't, we're never going to be as strong as we need to be and continue to move forward in our journey to where God wants us to go. And then finally, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. The word associate means to become intimate, to mix it up, to keep company. But notice what he says, verse 10. Because they, they got this wrong, just like a lot of Christians today. In no way did I mean the immoral people of the world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters, since you'd have to then go out of the world. And yet that's the way a lot of Christians have lived their lives. They sit in judgment of the world, of people who don't even know Christ. Listen, as Paul's going to say here in a little bit, it has never been our responsibility to judge people who aren't Christians. Of course they act that way. They don't have Christ. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have the capacity to live this way. We're never to sit in judgment of the world. Or you have a lot of Christians who said, I'm going to separate myself from worldly people. They're going to contaminate me, you know. And so we, you know, live that monastic, isolated lifestyle. And yet we'll put up with sin in the church. We'll tolerate sin amongst ourselves. But somehow we feel like we're doing what God's asked us to do by separating ourselves from the people of the world. Well, first of all, as God would say to us, how can we be a light to the people who need Jesus if we're never around the people who need Jesus? How can we witness to them? How can we have a testimony to them if we remove ourselves from them and just have our little holy huddle and never get around people who need the Lord? God says, go into the world. He just says, don't be like the world. Which is one of the other reasons why we need to be this kind of a church. Because we need to protect our witness to the world. See, again, 
what kind of really impact are we going to have on people who don't know Christ if they, from the outside, look at the church and they see that basically the way we live our lives and the way we do things is no different from the way they do things? Then they're probably scratching. They're going, what do I need to be part of a church for? Or, or you have this today. The reason most people join a church or go to a church is simply for social. It is primarily, primarily people go to church today, even Christians, because of the social part of it. They don't primarily join a church or become part of a church for being spiritually challenged. And, and, and they don't primarily go to church to spiritually grow. And you say, well, how can you say that? Because they've told me. <laughs> they've told me that. I hear that all the time. You know, church for them is just another sort of check mark on their social calendar. It, it's not about becoming like Christ. It's not about overcoming sin. It's not about all that. It's just a social thing. It's no different than joining anything else. But that's not the, supposed to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be distinct to the point where we live such a distinctive life that people who don't have Christ go, I don't know what that is totally, but I want what they've got. That's what I want. I want that kind of a life. I want that kind of hope. I want that kind of peace. I want that kind of joy. I want that kind of love. How can those people get along so well with each other? I want to check that out. See, that's what, by living the way we're supposed to live in holiness and righteousness, we will attract people to us. We don't need to, you know. So then he goes on. Verse 11, now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who calls himself a Christian who is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or verbally abusive or a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a person. By the way, the word eat in that culture meant union and fellowship, partnership. Wow, this rocked their world. I mean, Paul totally, they thought, we're supposed to stay away from non-Christians and people of the world. And Paul said, no. You're supposed to go to the world and be a witness to them. But if you have a fellow brother or sister in Christ who's living like that continuously, again, we all make mistakes. We all He's talking here about continual living in sin and unwilling to repent. Then Paul said, it is our responsibility to break off fellowship. Why? Because there needs to be consequences. They need to realize that being part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ isn't just joining another club. Being part of the Lord Jesus Christ is a great privilege, but is also an awesome responsibility because we carry the name of Christ and therefore his reputation, his honor is on the line. It's very serious. And God takes it very seriously. And so should we. So should we. And that's why he goes on in verse 12 to say, For what do I have to judge those outside the church? He says, Are you not, though, to judge those inside? Again, never judge someone's motives. Never judge them in questionable gray areas like we talked about Sunday. 
But when it comes to clear, right, and wrong, that the Bible clearly spells out, like having sex with your stepmother when you're not married to her and you're living together, yeah, that's clearly wrong. In fact, that's so wrong, even people outside the church say, yeah, that's wrong. We wouldn't even do that. He said, then you need to deal with it. He said, notice, verse 13, God will judge those outside. If they, they need to be dealt with, God will deal with them. That's not our job. But our job is, our responsibility is to maintain purity inside the church for several reasons. And one being that where there's purity, there's power. You show me a Christian who's living in purity and I'll show you a powerful Christian. You show me a church that is predominantly made up of Christians who are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and I will show you a powerful church with a powerful witness. That's why it makes no difference to God how big or how small churches are. The difference in the impact and influence of a church is the commitment of the believers inside that church. That's what makes the difference to God. Are they really devoted and committed to me, or are they just playing church? If they're really committed, because we see it in the Bible, God took 120 people who were sold out to Him, and the Bible says in the book of Acts, they turned the world upside down. 120 people. It doesn't take a lot of Christians who are really sold out to God to really make an impact. What it does take is truly committed Christians. And many of us today don't want to, in a sense, pay the price of being a really committed Christian. And then Paul says, remove the evil person from among you. The word remove means to lose their place. Lose their place. They should have to lose their place because they should realize this is a privilege to be part of the body of Christ. We are to be an example. And, and you and I all know this, and I'll wrap it up here because it's after 8 o'clock. By the way, the word evil, I think this is important, means to cause hardship, trouble, and pain. We even see this in our own country, folks. We are living in a day and age where we lack leadership at every level of our society. We are suffering as a country because of lack of character and integrity at every level of society. If the church ever needed to be the church that God has caused to be, it's today. We're losing our young people. We're losing generations of young people and children because... The church isn't willing to step up and be the church and do the hard things and do the right things no matter what it costs. We can see that with our own government. We can see that in, again, every level of society. And we, the church, the blame has to be laid at our doorstep too. I know this. I know when God led me to start this church, God said, Jeff, all I care about is that you do it as I've laid it down in the Bible. 
Because you're going to have to stand before me one day and you're going to have to give an account. If you don't have anybody who says, yeah, you know what? I want to be a part of that too. Fine. You do what I've called you to do. First of all, I want to thank you. Because it would be a little lonely if you guys weren't here. (laughs) And you guys are so encouraging. And I am glad that we're doing this together. But I, I guess... What I'm trying to say, and I'm saying this to myself as much as I am to you, it's not going to be easy, folks. We're like a salmon swimming upstream in this culture we're living in. If we want to really do church biblically, we're going to be like even more odd than most Christians are looked at as odd. We've got to be willing to do what God calls to do and trust Him. Because our country needs it. Our society needs it. We, we owe it to our young people and our children to try to turn this thing around. And I'm sorry, I, I don't think the answer is our government. I think the answer is the church. I think when Christians begin to rise up and be who we are called to be, this nation can turn around. Because the answer is Jesus Christ. He's the answer. So, I want you to think about this and pray about this. What are your thoughts? Do you think that the culture that has been created in America and the American church today has made it almost impossible to follow what Paul's laid down in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Give that some thought. And some of you share your thoughts with me maybe on Sunday or next Tuesday. It's a good chapter to ponder, meditate on. A lot, of, a lot of meat there to chew on for the next couple of weeks. Alright, let's pray. God, thank You. Thank You for loving us enough that God, You're willing to speak into our lives truth even if it hurts even if it's painful. Because God, Your love for us is a love that seeks our absolute highest good. You seek what is best. And You never want us to settle for anything less. And so often, Lord, in our society, we live in a society that settles. We don't really seek Your best. We, we settle for something less in our lives. Something less in church. Something less in all areas of our lives. And yet, God, that is not why Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, left heaven to come to this earth. He came to this earth not only to give us life, but to give us abundant life. To give us a higher quality of life than we could ever have without Him. And God, I pray tonight that as this passage of Scripture sinks into our being and into our hearts and minds, that there would be those of us here that would say, God, I want to be one of those that seeks your very best. 
I don't want to settle. I don't want to be satisfied with just the crumbs. I want to live in such a way that, God, I will absolutely experience the best that I can on this side of glory. And Lord, I pray that we would have a church filled with people who are so on fire for Jesus Christ, so committed to Him, that the spiritual temperature of this church would go so high and be so hot that we would be such a tremendous lighthouse in this community and really reflect the reality and the truth of who you really are. Not who man wants you to be, but who you really are. God, thank you for being who you are. We praise you. We exalt you. We lift you up. And may we live in, a, in such a way that continues to do that in the days ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here. Hope to see you on Sunday. God bless you.